All right. Well, it's so good to be with you here this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Dylan Moy. I am the director of worship and student ministry here at Bethany Ballard. So it's uh, just my privilege and honor to lead worship and uh, be a part of youth group with our great high school and middle school students and leaders as well. But uh, this morning, I have the, the privilege and honor of just sharing with you something that I read the past couple of weeks, the scripture that we're going to be talking about uh, in our study of First John. So we're going to be continuing in First John. And uh, if you want, you can get out your Bibles right now or the smartphone. Uh, if you've got the Bible app on there, you can pull that out right now too. First John, we're going to be in chapter 2, and it's a pretty big chunk. So we're going to get through it, and then we're going to pray together. First John, chapter 2 starting in verse 9. Okay. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word and the wisdom that it imparts to us. Lord, we thank you that you have given it to us and that we can always turn to it as our guidebook for life. So as we are reading through your scriptures this morning, as we are just going through it together, I pray that your Holy Spirit would put a word on our hearts, something that we might need to hear this morning. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the letter of John is really interesting. As I'm reading it this week, there's a couple cool things that I picked up on. Uh, One interesting fact that you might not know is that it's a letter, but it's not really written like a letter. It's written more like a poetic sermon, which is kind of interesting, different from some of the other letters. But it's also written to a network of these house churches in where we think is ancient Ephesus that were basically just small groups. So I think we have the tendency, we can look back on passages like this and we can put our own experiences and understandings and and cultures too into the text, but we need to look at what was actually going on. And these churches at this time, they're not led by like a big council of elders. They don't have stages and musical equipment, probably. They don't have finance departments. They don't have audio video teams, no social media presence. They don't have a pope or a bishop or a high priest. They're just led by people like you and me, people who heard the name of Jesus and wanted to know more. But John's letter also comes to these house churches at a time where there's division, there's fighting amongst people, there's heresy, there's an ignorance of sin. So these people in these house churches are struggling, as John says, they're walking around blindly, they're living in the darkness. 
And John is writing to these people to address their situation and they're just to encourage them to walk in the light. So today we're going to be talking about discipleship, why it matters to us, why it's important, because John's letter is shouting this message in so many ways. It's going to be up on the screen, but it's our overarching theme for today. We need to live a life of discipleship. We've got to live a life of discipleship. So when we look at Jesus' calling for us, being disciple is not an option. It's not like a supplemental deal for our faith. It's at the very core how we live for Jesus. And if you're taking notes this morning, you can write down this first point. Number one, discipleship needs to be our daily walk. But what is discipleship? I think we're going to define it right now because I think that's going to be really important for us. Disciple, it comes from the Greek word, uh, mathetes. You can say it if you want, mathetes. And it is a learner or a student who follows sort of a master teacher. And in contrast to our current culture, learning in Jesus's time was very relational. It's interconnected. It's this holistic approach to life. It's not just a transfer of information. And Jesus and his disciples loved each other like brothers, and some of them literally, But the mentorship that these men and women had with Jesus was so much more like a dear friendship. It was relational. And that's what discipleship is. So we'll look at the text again. I'm going to read it from the ESV because I like the way that they word it in here. I write to you, little children. It's very intimate, relational. Uh, I write to you because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. So he points out a few things that these early believers are doing right. They know the Father. They know his character. They have a relationship with him. And that all comes from prayer. And John also says the word of God lives in them too. So they're spending time in the scriptures, Old Testament, probably reading it daily. And then we come to another third really important practice that these believers are doing right. And they are being discipled by spending time with others. They're in fellowship, they're in community, whether through a small group or one-on-one meeting with a friend or church on Sunday. The whole purpose of those are relationships. We do it together. We do ministry together. That's how Jesus did his ministry. And so when we come and we treat Sunday like maybe a ritualistic or sort of programmatic event, rather than what it should be, which is the relational gathering of God's people, we get robbed of the experience of true discipleship. And even worse, when we neglect to meet in person altogether, like the author of Hebrews says, we are like a branch cut off from the vine. We're going to die. And I'd like it to just take it a step further. I think some of us maybe... Uh, are used to doing things online, especially through COVID, all throughout COVID. Uh, Maybe we've made that a practice or we've kind of treated Sunday mornings like our one-stop shop for spirituality. And maybe we've even lost touch with some of the deeper relationships that we used to have. And I just want to encourage you, don't wait till next week. Don't skip out the door before you've had a chance to connect with somebody and, and share life with them. Because when we do this, when we skip out on these things, it's like picking up a bunch of, you know, fresh-cut flowers from Trader Joe's or QFC or wherever, tossing them in a little water with those tiny packets of flower food. Like, they can look healthy for a little bit, 
but they're going to die eventually. They're going to go bad. And it's the same way with our faith and our walk. When we are doing that, we can make it a little while, but it's not going to be healthy for us in the end. We cheapen our faith as a follower of Jesus for ourselves and as those who need to be discipled, but we are also cheapening it for others who need to be discipled themselves. And I think that we'll head down a path of just flat-out stopping growth and become spiritually faded like those flowers. And this brings me this morning to our second point, so you can write this down if you want to. There are dangers and consequences to a life without discipleship. There are dangers and consequences to a life without discipleship. All throughout these verses, there are a lot of really clear warnings on what happens when we live a life without discipleship. And so we'll read from verse 11. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. The believers in the church that John is writing to in this time are in real danger of regressing spiritually in their maturity. They're going to stumbling around blindly, living in the dark, and that's all bad. And this is exactly what John is trying to address here when he's talking about some of that fighting, the division that's going on in the churches amongst these believers. They're hating one another. And I think if we, we all know this, we all know the commandment, like don't hate, you're committing murder in your heart. But when we hate others, it goes deeper than that too. It's like it removes us from community and fellowship. I know for a fact that if I'm in a real, you know, problematic, if I'm just button heads with, you know, one of my best buddies or whatever, uh, we're not going to be talking. We're not going to be in fellowship with one another. And even more importantly than that, the fellowship with others, it separates us from our closeness with God. So we should pay attention to these warnings for our own lives too. And the author of Hebrews continues in counting the cost on what a discipleship-less, I don't think that's a word, but I'm using it, uh, discipleship-less life. He does not sugarcoat it either. So we'll read from verse 11. It's uh, Hebrews chapter 5. There is much more that we would like to say about this but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Ouch. You have been believers for so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right and wrong. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, our youth group played this game. It's called Baby Food Roulette. And they know it is as bad as it sounds. It's disgusting. So basically what happens is we all get in this big circle. We're all standing together. And one person has a spoon. There's one spoon through the whole group of us. And it just keeps getting passed around while there's music playing. And then the music stops, and the person left holding the spoon has to take a big old spoonful of baby food. And I didn't get, like, good flavors either. They were all of the worst ones I could find. I went to QFC, and I'm, I'm looking down just at the bottom of the shelf, and they have chicken gravy, which tasted more like a strong fishy tuna. There was apple spinach and kale, sweet potato and peas, butternut squash. They were just all so terrible. But, I mean, let's look at this illustration together because I think if we're thinking about it, as a baby, 
We don't care about the nourishment that we're getting. Like, food is food. As adults, though, I know a lot of us are grimacing, maybe even gagging at the thought of returning to the room temp jar of mushy veggies. It's just gross. But this is what we as Christians are returning to when we're not walking in discipleship and community with one another. We become spiritual babies. We become dull to the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we can't hear when he's calling us. So 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. John's saying don't love the world, and I think the opposite of that is really loving the Father. And that'll bring us to our third point here if you're taking notes. The expectation of disciples is becoming more and more like Jesus. So John's message to the people of Ephesus is not to condemn them and to just shower on them all the things that they're doing wrong, but it's to bring them back to Christ and point back to him as our only example. So in other words, our lives should end up reflecting Christ's life. Our words, our actions, our habits, our, you know, you can fill in the blank there. And the change that we're experiencing through this should not just be slapping a fish sticker on the back of the vessel of our soul or anything like that. It should be real. It should be a real change. Because that sort of change is being a transformed flesh and blood testimony of the grace and mercy of God. Our lives should really bear the markers and signs of a, of a life radically transformed by Jesus. Now Luke 9:23 says, "Then he said to the crowd, "If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me." Jesus told his followers in all of the gospels, "You've got to abandon the former ways of your lives, the old habits, the distractions, all of it. You have to kill off the old ways. You have to die to yourself." And Paul talks about this exact same thing later in Galatians uh, 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Jesus isn't just saying this purely for us to rid ourselves of sin or to make us look better or to put on this kind of sheen of looking really good. He's saying it so that we have the chance to experience all of the good things that living in his presence offers us. I'm not going to read them all to you, but there is so much good. There's so many promises that God speaks over each and every one of us. He's declared them over our lives when we are walking with him daily and when we model our lives after Jesus's. He says, we're going to find rest for our souls. That comes from Matthew 11:28. 28. We're going to find comfort and mercy. That comes from Psalm 23. He says we will find peace, Romans 5:1, and an eternal life, John 5:24. We have a living hope in a Savior who gave up his own life for ours. We didn't deserve it. We could never earn it, but he did it anyway. So, what does this mean for us as we're talking about all of this, as we're thinking about discipleship and reading the book of 1 John together? I think it's true 
that we really need to address the sin in our lives. It's like Brad talked about last week. The, the first part of that addressing the sin is our confession to God. But it definitely doesn't end there. We're called to confess others to others. And this is where the message of 1 John and the talk about discipleship and just discipleship as a whole gets really, really practical. And it's something that I'm super, super passionate about. Uh, James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Because the prayer of an earnest, or the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. So, I think as we're talking about this and as I've been thinking about it this week, the best way that I have thought about this is it's kind of like this. Who's done a little bit of work maybe on your car? You've maybe changed oil or, I mean, even any sort of maintenance whatsoever. And some of you might be master mechanics. I do a little bit of work on my car, and I'm definitely not great at it. I am the classic YouTube everything guy. Uh, I've got an old convertible that I bought for my first car, and I still have it. I really love it, but even this week, I was working on it, and it's just always a project. It's always giving me a problem, and I was trying to replace a couple things on it about a year ago, I think, and it required a couple different fancy tools that I had to, I had to go rent them and bring them back, and uh, it wasn't supposed to be a huge undertaking by any means, but after I was getting in there a little bit, trying to figure this one part out, uh, I could not get, it It was just this one piece that I couldn't remove. And I looked at it probably from a thousand different angles. I was, I had a flashlight in there. I brought up my iPad and I'm just taking pictures and videos and stuff. I checked my Haynes manual, YouTube, Volkswagen forums. I, I did everything. I even called a couple places and said, you know, like, what is going on here? Cannot figure this out. But nothing. I had no luck with any of it. And I rolled it over. I just gave in. I rolled it over to my buddy's house, a close friend of mine, to his garage. He had all the tools. And maybe within two minutes, he looked up at me and he was like, it's just this one little 12-millimeter bolt back there. Like, so easy. And isn't this so true of our own lives, though? Like, we can be looking at ourselves thoroughly And we're never going to see some of the the flaws that we have, some of the brokenness that we carry. Whatever it is, big or small, could be an anger issue, could be a problem with jealousy or gossip, could be a problem with pornography or alcoholism, whatever it is, big or small. And it's not until we go from being alone to going to somebody else, and maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a best friend or a small group buddy, and they say, dude, you need to see this about yourself. This isn't right. You need some help. And I'm just going to say this as a universal truth statement that we as human beings need a person that we can be accountable with, someone that we can share with and be honest and vulnerable. And uh, so a few years ago, I was in a pretty rough place with sin in my own life. Pretty much All of my friends had moved up to Bellingham. They were going to school there. And I ended up just feeling really isolated. And I was doing all the right things still. I was going to church. Uh, Olivia and I were co-leading a young adults group kind of in the Edmonds area. But 
even though I had all of that, I still lacked a space where I could be honest and vulnerable, a place where I could share the hardest parts of my life, the deepest struggles, maybe the dirtiest secrets, the messiest truths. And all of that absolutely took a 180 turn, just radically changed my life when I joined a small group. And it was at this uh, Mill Creek. It was a four-square church up in Mill Creek. And I'm still together with those guys. They're just amazing. But that group absolutely changed my faith, my walk, my health. I went from suffering alone, which is obviously, I mean, we all know it. It's the place where sin flourishes in the darkness when we're isolated. And I went from there to walking arm in arm with a bunch of other guys becoming victorious over that same sin and struggle. That's how sin is quenched out. It goes from being in the darkness to the light. So when James tells us in uh, James, whatever it was, James 5.16, thanks. Yeah, James 5.16. When he tells us, hey, you need to share these difficult things because it's going to bring healing to your heart and soul. He knows that it's vital to our health, and he knows that we need the continual practice and lifestyle of accountability just built into the very framework of our lives. And maybe you're how like I was. I was so nervous to jump into that group. I didn't want to do it. It's scary, especially I feel like for us guys, it's hard to get real. It's hard to be vulnerable and to get in that space. Just nothing freaks me out more than releasing all of my sin and shame to these other people I didn't really know. But I just want to tell you today, don't be afraid to take the next step. Because the enemy, he so wants you to not do it. He wants you to stay isolated. He's going to tell you lies. Maybe you've heard them before. Nobody struggles with what I do. Or maybe those guys have been walking in the faith for so long, they don't deal with this stuff anymore. But it's not true. They're all lies. Jesus is calling you to come to him and to come into the light. Because in the light, in relationship with him, in relationship with others, there's freedom, there's hope, there's joy. He's calling you because he loves you, and no amount of shame could ever change that. It starts with our pursuit first of our relationship with Jesus, and then the relationship after that can just pour out of us and flow into our relationship with others so that we can be discipled and so that we can disciple those who need it too. So as uh, Dan and Emily come up, they're going to lead us in a few more songs of response and worship, but we're going to have a time here together where we can take communion as a community, as a fellowship of believers. And I have a couple questions for us as we're thinking about some of these things. If we look at our own lives, are we honest enough to see that we have the same desperate need for discipleship as the church in John's time? Are we willing to go and take the next step to be bold, to go out of our comfort zone and do that? Am I willing to schedule my life around my faith, or am I going to do the opposite of that? And then the second question, or set of questions, that I want to ask you, and myself too, is there someone trustworthy in your life that you can share to, that you can confess to? It's got to be somebody trustworthy. And if you don't have that, then maybe it's time to join a small group. 
And if you're not dedicated to making church on Sunday a part of your relational gathering every week, then maybe it's time to change that too. And I just want to encourage you, take a chance. Have real honest relationships where you can be accountable and live in the light. Because that's what true discipleship is. And that's how Jesus wants us to live. And at the end of all this, we need to realize too that we have a desperate need for Jesus. Where the scars of sin have marred our hearts, we are deeply broken and flawed. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. He defeated death. He conquered the grave. And he's been chasing after you and your heart since the very beginning. So the ball's in our court now. Are we going to take the next step together? Because Jesus is calling us. I'm going to pray for us. And there is going to be communion here if we want to take it together. It's available to you as we respond in some of these next songs. Uh, But I'm going to pray for us in our, our worship together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this morning. God, we thank you for the truth that you have done everything necessary for our salvation, everything necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. But Lord, we thank you that there is this calling, a deeper calling to to be in intimate relationship with you. And I thank you that you have given us a fellowship, a community of other people who love you too. Lord, and may we just be bold enough to step into the next step of saying, I'm done living in the darkness. I'm done being alone, trying to do this on my own. I'm going to choose discipleship. I'm going to choose walking with others where there's freedom and hope and joy and peace. So as we sing our songs together, Lord, just be with us. God, help convict our hearts and just help us to pursue you more, to love you more, to worship you with everything that we have. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.